Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you so much for joining me again today. Um, I'm really honored by your presence. We're a little bit late today, but uh, I was doing some research and um, I had to take my time uh, before I was ready. It was a beautiful day today. It was raining and I love the rains. Uh, um, not all the time, but sometimes. But it was a beautiful day today, uh, raining uh, on and off. Not very heavy, but uh, a, a beautiful, beautiful day. It was the longest day of the year. If I'm not mistaken, June the 22nd was June the 21st. But hey, it was gorgeous. So we'll get right down to the podcast and like i said i am very very honored that you're here to share this uh journey with me we're here to talk about history of the indian subcontinent the atwa all that lies in between hindutwa the the layers and the layers and the layers that form the currents and the waves of hindustan the land surrounded by water Hind comes from the word Sindh. Sindh means water or body of water. So the land, the stan, uh, that is surrounded by water, bodies and bodies of water. So the currents that form our waves and everything that lies in between Atwa. And that, my dear friend, is history in the modern terms. And we are going to talk about the agrarian system or the, uh, the history of the Indian um village communities um and the village life during the mogul era okay um so we'll talk about um we'll start with property the peasants and the land okay this again is um is from the book of uh irfan habib that i started yesterday with you uh, these only excerpts from there so the aggregate system of Mughal India from 1556 to 1707. And we're going to just uh, talk about some few excerpts from uh, chapter number four, not the entire thing because it's too big. And I do suggest that you buy the book. Uh, this is a, a relatively good book, gives you a lot of information. And um, it would be a good buy and a good read for you, something very important to keep with you. So... The European travelers visiting India in the 16th and 17th centuries held unanimously to the view that the king was the owner of the soil in India. Okay, the, the doctrine was passed on to the British officials who managed that the East India Company had inherited a universal right of ownership from the land from its predecessors. Okay, it was a normal way of thinking for any feudal system, although um, Mr. Habib doesn't agree with it, and, and a lot of idea, uh, ideologues, also historians, do not agree with this. But this was normal uh, for in Europe, this was serfdom. And it existed all over the planet in different forms, okay, uh, in formats. Um, so yeah, absolutely, it, it is. It did. You will see exist on the Indian subcontinent, although officially not officially. It's a whole different, nice, fancy word and fancy concept. But in reality, on the ground, it was the same system. Um, so. No such pretensions, he says, were put forward on behalf of the Mughal rulers in any official documents. 
when Abu Faisal set himself the task to justifying the imposition of taxes on the peasants and merchants, he does not argue that the tax on the land flows from the sovereign right of ownership. He appeals on the contrary to the social contract by which the sovereign obtains his remuneration through taxation in return for providing protection and justice to his, subs, to his subjects. Now, isn't that something, this crony nonsense that everyone talks about? A social contract, uh, we provide you the, the, the security and, and justice, and you provide us the funds in return, that's, that's typical. But in reality, it's a whole different ballgame. And you will see over here... Um, you will see to this chapter that yes, the the sovereign does become the owner of the land and inheritance inherits uh, the land from the previous ruler who they defeat. The land then becomes them, and anything on that land is now owned by the sovereign, uh, and he will administer it in different ways. So it's only in the 18th century that we have an assertion of the king's right to ownership. Um, a famous lexion from 1739-1740 takes the term karaj to signify land tax or kajra tax, um, which accrues to the king because of his ownership or milkiat of the land. So the king owns the land, so he is able to tax the land. It's called karaj tax. And um, it's because he owns the land, or in, in Persian, uh, during the Mughal time, Milkiet. It In an interesting, interesting theoretical tract of a Muslim jurist of about the same time, a verse that in all times the Hindu peasants did indeed believe their Rajas to be the owners, Malik, of the land, but according to the law, um, the cultivated tax-paying land could not be held to be the pro could not be held to be the property of the ruler. He admitted rather significantly that his own name, his own time, the peasants regarded the zamindars as proprietors, and this was reinforced by the peasants allowing the zamindars the right to expel them from the land. Yet he says. This was uh, a false claim on the part of the zamindars, since what the sultan realized from the zamindars and peasants were not really land tax, for it exceeded all legally allowable limits. It was, in fact, rent. Okay, uh, Ujrat. In India, neither peasants nor the zamindars could be deemed to be tax-paying proprietors, since the sultan was not called upon to make any provision for them out of uh, the masul, should they abandon or be removed. The land, as as would have been necessary, uh, that truly been proprietors. One, one would think that the Kazi was now reaching the very conclusion that he had he at the start contested, namely, that as rent receiver, the king should be deemed to be the proprietor. Uh, he, sh he just manages to avoid this by arguing that land was to be seen rather in the light of spoils and as belonging to the Muslim public treasury, though this too was under the control and administration of the sultan. In essence, um, 
the conclusions of the European travellers, the king was either the proprietor or possessor of the entire land, since that was received by him or on his behalf, was so large a share of the produce of the land as to approximate uh, legitimately to rent rather than anything recognisable as tax. This view also has been influenced by the Jagir system. The Jagidars were the most natural counterparts of the great uh, landlords in Western Europe, who by the 16th century were already well on their way to establishing their position as full landowners of their manors and fief, uh, fiefdoms. In the Mughal if the Mughal emperor could so routinely transfer the Jagidars from their Jagis or territories, territorial charges, then he and not the Sinis had to be seen as the true owner. So it's basically the same serfdom system as in Europe. It existed during the Mughal rule, the Delhi Sultanate, and even before that. Since the concept of king's ownership of the land was based only in the size of the land, uh, and not any claim put forward by the king himself, this could not even theoretically preclude to the existence in towns of a system of private property in land, as was expressively noted by Bernier. Our, rec um, our records not only show townsmen as mullocks selling plots to each other, uh, but also by selling lands to the king, or even disputing their position with him. A private proprietor seems to have had the full right to levy rent and, and evict the ocumen. Less easy to, ex to explain the framework of the theory of royal ownership of land are the, uh, and are the even more numerous sales of agricultural land in villages by zamindars and others, whom documents themselves often style as maliks or proprietors. So we see the king is the owner of the land and he dispenses the land and its inhabitants to who he chooses. The questions of the rights and status of the peasants themselves, it has been argued, but without it adducing much evidence, that the peasants were the ultimate proprietors of the land in pre-colonial India. To some extent, one would uh, supply deficiency uh, in evidence. Aranzib's farmen to uh, Muhammad Hashim uses the term malik and arbi zameen landowners for the actual cultivators of the land. The testimony of the farming is, however, suspect since it was uh, express expressively drafted to set out uh, the laws of the Shariat, which bore little relevance to the aggregate conditions of India. 18th century evidence from Eastern Rajasthan tells us that's tells us of a superior of superior peasants expecting a concessional revenue rate buying up lands of ordinary cultivators and either leasing them out on sharecropping or cultivating them with the he um, help of hired labor um, So the specific cases are reinforced by the general statement of the historian uh, Kafi Khan, who speaks of the propriety and hereditary lands of the peasants, though in the context of these being seized and sold away by oppressive revenue officials. 
The crux of the matter really is whether the substance, not merely the designation of the peasant's relationship to the land he cultivated, was such as to deserve the application of the term propriety. Um, so we're going to take a look at this. Um, we are still on chapter number four, four page 127. Okay, Certain statements in our sources suggest recognition of the peasant's right to permanent and hereditary occupancy. The farmhand uh, addressed to Muhammad Hashim provides that if the cultivator was found incapable of cultivating a land or abandoned it altogether, it was to be given to another for cultivation, so that there was no loss of revenue. But if any time the original Malik recovered his ability to cultivate the land and returned to it, the land was to be restored to him. That is, was that this was not an abstract principle is shown by its adoption in the imperial sunad in specific case of a village where cultivation had been abandoned. A person is said to have offered to repair its wells and restore cultivation. The sunad declares the offer was to be declined wherever the malik was present and capable of undertaking cultivation. Only failing this was the offer to be accepted, but provided the consent of the malik was first obtained. Akbar's regulations exhorted revenue officials to ensure that the revenue guarantees did not convert peasant holdings into their own personally cultivated holdings. The significance of this being brought out exceptionally well by a survey of a revenue grant in Navsari near Surat, in which the two categories of holdings are, are sharply distinguished. Jangu's accession de decrees prohibited the revenue officials themselves from forcibly converting the land of peasants into their own holdings. So that was a little bit about the way land was owned in Mughal India, whether it was owned by the peasants who, who tilled the land or whether the zamindars, and it was more likely the zamindars, but on paper it was written um, the peasants. It is likely that the peasants' right to land with the potential of becoming a saleable right in this manner we have just outlined could exist only in areas which were rayati, that is where the peasants were in, in uh, sorry, unencumbered with any claims of zamindars over them. The zamindars, as we shall see, were very often credited with the right to determine peasant occupancies. The peasant acknowledge, uh, acknowledging them as proprietors. The king, uh, the king's power to take away. The king had the power to take away the land from the peasants. Also, if the peasants flee, he says the king assigns their lands to others, allowing the former cultivators no share in the produce of the land abandoned by them. Even if the peasants remain, um, even if the peasants remain but are unable to till the land, the king gives it to another peasant on whom the revenue is then levied. It is, however, possible to argue that the right only accrued to the king and his officials when the peasant failed to pay the revenue, or did not raise the produce out of which the revenue could have been paid. No right of eviction at will is claimed on the king's behalf. Even, um, even by Kazi Muhammad um, A, who otherwise seems keen to discern marks 
of the king's possessory uh, control all over the land. So I'm guessing the Muhammad was a Qazi in, in, in the emperor's time, in the Mughal time. If peasants could not, under contemporary con uh, conceptions of justice and equity, be removed from his land, he did not equally have the free uh, or absolute right to remove himself from it. Um, there was observed by a European traveler in respect of Gujarat presence little difference between them and serfs, such as found in Poland, for year two the peasants must all sow. Um, a Ramsed farmer insists upon his obligations to the peasants when it says that if other, if after investigation appears that despite their capacity to undertake cultivation and availability of irrigation, uh, they have withdrawn their lands, they, they have withdrawn their hands from cultivation, the revenue officials should coerce and threaten them and visit them with imprisonment and corporal punishment. The draft of a specimen mourned from village officials given in a manual of revenue administration offers a confirmation of the principles set forth in a Ramzid's farming. The zamindaris, the zamindars, and the village officials were were bind here bind themselves not to allow any cultivator to leave his place. If some cultivators did ne nevertheless abstain, they are they undertook to distribute the land of the abandonees among those who remain. That was a little difficult. Documents dealing with specific cases show how peasants' obligation to remain in his original place to cultivate the soil was insisted upon. In 1646, the emperor ordered Jagidars of Baroch, Baroda to return the peasants who within the five previous years had migrated from, the, from Surat and Olpad in Jagir of Princess Jahan Ara. Earlier in 1632, when 70 peasants fled from uh, Makbulabad um, into southern Gujarat, they were ordered that they be handed over to the men of the of the Jagidar of uh, Makbulabad. Two interesting cases of individual peasants come from the same collection of documents. Um, so it's you, you see the, there were different types of ownership of land. One was official, one was not official. Uh, then you had uh, peasants who were forced to live on the land and till the land, and if they abandoned, they would get nothing, and they were bought back as if they owned, as if they were slaves to the land. So that also existed. Um, so there, there were multiple ways of, of peasants working the land, owning the land or just being tillers on the land. The willingness of a state to recognize peasant's right of occupancy and its anxiety to prevent him from leaving the land were both natural in the age when land was relatively abundant and peasants scarce. We have seen before that in Mughal times, the area under cultivation was in many regions pro probably only half and in others two thirds or three quarters of the area under cultivation at the beginning of the 20th century. There were always stretches of virgin land beckoning to the peasants, which, uh, while which his low level of subsistence and primitive huts, he had few immovable possessions to tie him to the old place of habitation. In Hindustan, observed Bab Babur, Hamilton villages 
and towns were depopulated and set up in a moment. If a, pe if a people of large towns who had lived there for years flee from it, they do, uh, they do it in such a way that not a sign or trace of them remains in a day or day, a day and a half. On the other hand, if they fix their eyes on a place in which to settle, they need to not dig water courses or construct dams because their crops are all rain-grown. The population is unlimited. The group collects together, they make a tank, dig a well. They need not build houses or set up walls. Uh, grass abounds, trees were innumerable, and straightway, straightway there is a village or a town. So this is how it was in Mughal India. Uh, and, and this is noted in, by Babur, right? the first Mughal the position of peasant in Mughal India in relation to the land thus offers a sharp contrast to that of his descendants living under modern landlordism created under British rule. The great weapon in the hands of the modern landlord has been the threat of eviction of his tenancy. So by the time we come down to the British rule, the, the, um, the tenant, uh, the cultivator was a tenant on the land. He didn't own most of the land. The abandonment of this land by any of his of the tenants came to hold no terrors to the landlord. But even in 1819, this was not the case, writing of what is now Uttar Pradesh. Um, land being more abundant than the labor in general, the zamindar had great reason to dread the de desertion of his um, of his uh, right that they had to f then they had to fear expulsion from the land. So if, pe if peasants and tillers ab abandoned the land, then the landlord would not have uh, people to replace them so fast. Um, so that was the bigger fear. Uh, the situation changed as a result of two parallel processes. First, the zamindar turned into the main rent ex-proprietor as a share of the colonial state in agricultural surplus directly claimed in tax declined during latter half of the 19th century. Second, the pressure on the land increased as the sources of livelihood outside agriculture stagnated or disappeared under the impact of Britain's conquest of the Indian market. The two processes handed over a large number of peasants bound hand and foot as tenants um, at will to the landlord and land at last becoming scarce and human beings superfluous. So this is very, very important to understand how we got this uh, tiller system started with the Jagidar system, um, the Zamindari system on the Mughals, and then after, or should I say, the Jagidar system, and yeah, and then Zamindari, and then, of course, then you come down to the British, um, and how slowly it became where land was was no longer in surplus, but the peasants were in surplus. So this little paragraph is on page 134 of this book, chapter number four of the Aggregate System of Mughal India. And I hope that you get a chance to buy the book and, and understand the whole uh, chapter. So I'm just giving you an excerpt. It's important to understand village life, uh, Aggregate System in India and pre-British rule uh, to understand the currents that form our waves.
So it's time now to turn for a last glance on the vexed question of pro uh, property or in land um, in Mughal India in so far as the peasants' recognition of the zamindar's right to choice uh, in giving land to him to, to till. He was not in, in such lands, at least, the proprietor. In these and other um, Ra'iyati areas, his right to occupancy was counterbalanced by the constraints legally set on his mobility. To that degree, he was a semi-serf, not a free agent, and his right, such as it was, was seldom saleable. It is therefore not possible to discern the emergence of any substantive peasant property in Mughal India. Rather, one could say that there was no exclusive right of property vesting in anyone. Instead, the system contained a network of transferable rights uh, and obligations with different claimants, the king or his assignee, the zamindar, uh, and finally the peasant. Uh, different defined shares in the produce from the same land. So that, my friends, was the system of um, ownership of land um, under the Mughal rule, uh, the, the relationship between the peasant and the land. Uh, now we'll talk about the peasants and the laborers. Uh, the peasant, together with his family, universally appears in our documents as separate individual producer tilling his own fields. Uh, what is said by the revenue manual of the early 19th century of Delhi Agra region would have been as true in the 17th century. The cultivating peasants who plow the fields mark the limits of the fields for identification and demarcation with the borders of of uh, raised earth, brick, and thorn, so that thousands of fields may be counted in a village. Okay. Um, so, basically, um, when surveys were carried out um, in India in the first decade of the 19th century, he similarly, they similarly found individual farming to be dominant in mode, together with the landlord, um, estate farming uh, here and there, but no trace of communal cultivation. Such conditions explain why the assumption of individual peasant cultivation so universally underlies the revenue regulation of the Mughal administration, such as those that insist on separate assessment of the holdings of each peasant as against the imposition of an aggregate figure for the whole village. Individually, peasant farming can never be egalitarian. The, the relative abundance of land might be thought to have been a factor inhibiting the increase of wealth in the hands of a few by monopoly of the land. Um, so, with one... At, uh, so on one side you had rich peasants, okay, there were existed a lot of rich peasants, but on one extreme, um, a farmer of Aranzib introduces us to those at the other end, small peasants, or as they call it, Reza Riaya, who engage in cultivation but are wholly in debt for their subsistence and seed cattle. They were numerous enough for um, 
for emperor to take the specific cognizance of them, classify them as indigent, to declare their exempt from the Jizya tax. Indebtedness certainly increased and in increased. A mid-19th century work from Bengal states that most peasants contracted debt to pay the land revenue and other imposts, and that the high rates, 12.5% per month, compounded after short periods, led to utter ruin. From Maharashtra comes the evidence taken just at the end of the Maratha rule in 1820 of widespread peasant indebtedness and of ruinously high rates charged on smaller loans. Because of the diminishing means, the pauperized peasants could not be compelled to plough lands or of other peasants, from those presumably they had obtained some assistance, in return, later for payments out of the produce. Such sub-peasants were called Kaljana in Bengal. They had their counterparts in eastern Rajasthan among the Palits, who tilled the land of zamindars and, and superior peasants as mere sharecroppers being subject to eviction at the will of the landowners. Uh, yep, that was uh, the peasants and the land. Um, so I will go to another page. Uh, there is also evidence of two large agricultural holdings. A master dyer of um, Akbar held in a village near Agra uh, about eight hectares of a self-cultivating holdings on which, according to the farm in 1562, he was hydro-paying tax. Later, in, Af in Akbar's reign, peasants from some villages in Sopra, Surat, Gujarat are found reportedly having, um, reporting that a desai had uh, cultivation of worth nearly 3,000 Mahudis. He, he must surely have used large numbers of plows and, and, and much hired labor to raise crops on which he um, so much tax could be due. The existence of cultivation by zamindars and rich peasants implied, as we have seen, the use of hired labor. Um, Some watchmen, they, they, they were people called watchmen, uh, Raka, and reapers, lavas, employed by the um, Kasam uh, or Kirsan, uh, the peasant, uh, the Divan Pasan tells us how the hired laborers performed all tasks of ag agriculture for the Mukadams or headmen, and uh, and. Uh, and laborers appeared in records on eastern, of eastern Rajasthan as necess necessary aids to cultivation by superior landholders. A large reserve of the labor was undoubtedly supplied by all those menial caste. Their members not only undertook work considered abhorrent by, by caste peasants, um, such as tannery, scavenging, etc., but also in a large measure agricultural workers. Um, there were ch uh, chamars or muchi, who were tanners and and omochi, sorry, and workers of leather. When not employed in the profession, cultivate land, 
chiefly as day laborers. The same caste that they work for wages in the fields of cultivators and zamindars. The Danuks, consisting of a lower caste, were supposedly so-called because they husked rice, dhan, and also labored at cutting and carrying crops of the cultivators. They were known as Tories in the Ajman province and the Balhas um, everywhere else. The same name is specifically significant because it takes us back to the 14th century when, um, when Zia Barani used to denote the low, lowliest of cultivators, uh, that the number of people belonging to, the, to these castes were quite large and can be argued on the basis of all censuses. Um, addition, in addition, there must, be, uh, must have been villages belonging to the peasant caste too, who were pauperized, um, and they could have been sharecroppers and turned into wage laborers. It was surely they who formed the pool of um, zami peasants, that is, peasants not cultivating land and and so not yet paying any tax, from amongst whom the authorities were expected to draw cultivators for newly settled villages. Uh, in Patna and Bihar uh, districts, poor people uh, of the cultivating tribe um, or artificers saw no disgrace in letting themselves out as day laborers, although people of high caste did not do so. Um, in, in, the, in a journey to South India, Buchanan in, in uh, 1800 found agrestic um, slavery to be the strongest in Kerala, of less importance in the coastal Kanara and barely traceable in the remainder of Karnataka and Tamil Nadu. It may be inferred from both negative and positive evidence that while in the Mughal Empire, rural uh, slavery was not wholly absent, it was numerically only very minor source of agricultural labor, even in areas where it was found. Modern landlordism and commercialization of agriculture under the colonial rule vastly expanded the ranks of landless in the 19th century and later. But this process was essentially one of enlargement, uh, not of creation of the class. So... Um, Ifran Habib says modern landlordism um, expanded the ranks of um, so-called slaves or serfs, um, but it was only expansion. It, the concept already existed and was practiced for a very long time on the Indian subcontinent, basically, is what he's trying to say. In the first place, if we assume that land was then abundant, then on average the peasants' holding uh, must have been larger than in later days when the population pressure on the land increased. In larger holdings, the peasants would need extra hands, especially at harvesting, but these would, could, would be the very times when peasants too would be occupied. The additional hands um, could come only from lower or menial caste. The additional hands could only from lower or, sorry, whose members were prevented by the caste system from turning into peasants and, and were therefore obli obliged perforce to work as depressed wages. The existence of untouchables was thus a pillar of Indian peasants' agriculture from very early times. Ever since that is the food gatherers and the forest folks were humbled and subjugated by settled 
agricultural communities. It would not indeed be surprising if actual status of many of them in Mughal India too was semi-servile, implying some kind of bondage, including obligation to surrender, forced to forced laborers, beggars to zamindars and upper class peasants. Secondly, the process of differentiation as it enlarged uh, the resources of one stratum and reduced those of another forced a number of peasants to abandon civilized cultivation and hire themselves out to their richer uh, neighbors. It is possible that so long as one had the opportunity to settle in fresh lands with borrowed seed and cattle, the number of such laborers recruited from pauperized peasants might remain limited. The great change would come when, under the colonial regime, by the later half of the of the 19th century, the impoverished peasant, once thrown out of the land, lost the capacity of ever settling up, setting up as a peasant again. So that, my dear friend, was the peasants and the land. We're going to talk now about the village community, how type of villages existed during the Mughal rule. And we will go to page 144 for that. Um, so just excerpt. Okay? I'm not reading everything. I cannot read everything for you. Um, and I hope that you will understand what I'm trying to do, is trying to give you knowledge about the aggregate life, uh, the village community in... Um, in Mughal India, and it's excerpt from the book of Irfan Habib, Aggregate System of Mughal India. Uh, the inhabitants of a village were unable to cultivate the land. The king would expel uh, and settle another uh, settle another comb in his stead. The actual description of the of the peasants by their caste occurs in a do in a document of 1611 where he was told that the ancient maliks of a village in central dobe had been kachis and chamars a former caste of reputed skilled cultivators the latter of tanners and laborers uh, this um, this would be middling case even today in in dobe um, in the Dob, one can identify villages with single dominant peasant caste, Jat, Gujarat, Gujars, Takos, or with fair mixture of caste, the territorial, territorial caste limits always overlapping. Um, Nainal in his village via survey of Marwar in the Vigat uh, recorded the inhabitants of each village of their peasant ca uh, caste. Menial castes do not all appear among the recorded village inhabitants and their artisan caste on those rare occasions apparently when they constituted a, um, a significant portion of the pe peasantry as well. When a village is reported to be in ruins, the Vigat uh, often carefully records their caste or caste um, which carry on cultivation in the lands. The, the Vigat survey would help us map peasant caste of Marwar. It shows that villages of Marwar were divisible into two zones. In the northern zone, most villages had a single peasant caste. In the south, the villages had contained two or more peasant castes, each form the more number numerous portion. 
So the existence of single caste villages in northern Maharashtra is also attested by statements. Uh, one appears in the Mughal report of 1679. The predominance of um, peasant class, single peasant class in particular villages together which multiplicity of such caste and other forms a pattern which may perhaps be universal to India, all over India. Um, so I am going to go to the next page. It is um, the light of such varied differentiation. We may look at the internal structure of a village. Here we find the same. We find seven persons, all sons of different fathers, selling different plots of land at various dates. Many of the dates. Being fictitious, however, the real trans transactions taking place between 1579 and 1588. The, in the Braj documents, they style themselves as village residents, okay, or punch, and punch mukadam, or as we may say, the village oligarchs. Okay, the Persian documents they appear simply as village residents, but in the last comp comprehensive document they are also referred to as mukaddam or headmen. Okay, uh, who are these headmen now? We are thus led to see that punch, or as forming a collective body or assemblage, the panchayat of tradition. The latter word usually takes place. Um, the, the latter word duly makes its appearance in two documents in 1599. Five named persons and other persons and other and others they form the panchayat of the village of um, Vrindavan over here selling plots of land. We are reminded of the occurrence of the same term in Punjab document in 1732, where it clearly refers to the assemble assemblage of shopkeepers, uh, where the decisions were taken on behalf of all of them. The composition of the panchayat of a village oligarchy uh, does not seem to have been necessarily confined to a single family or caste. Uh, the Arita documents of Akbar's reign show that the fathers of all seven punch are different persons. The, the 13 sellers um, merely style inhabitants of a village. In the Persian version, um, some punch in the, in the Brad who sell lands in hamlets. In um, are more heterogeneously uh, composed for three, uh, three of them bear Muslim names. One assumes that despite the heterogeneity, her hereditary succession had much to do with one's obtaining the status of punch. Only then could the mukadam of the latter speak to the earlier punch as their ancestors. Okay. Um, so I am going to go to something else over here. In 1800, Buchanan observed in Karnataka how pretty shares of from the harvest heaps was were set aside for the for the priest, um, the the medic the medical man, the astrologer, the barber, the pot maker, carpenters, blacksmiths, washermen, measurer, beetle watchman, and conductor of water, besides the village headman and accountant. Uh, the rates of shares varied with the size of the individual peasant family. 
Now that was long. In disposing of unutilized land or distribution of tax burdens and remitting it through the financial pool, the village oligarchs acted on the behalf of the peasants. But there were people other than the peasants too in the village, namely laborers and artisans, whose presence was essentially for agricultural work and for meeting the uh, very elementary needs of the villagers. The maintenance of such population could be secured partly at least by allotments of lands and house sites outside the village land and by distribution of customary shares in house. The attachment of lower um the attachment of lower servants, laborers and artisans, uh to the village community was by no means a relationship between equals. We have seen that in Nancy's survey, artisans castes seldom win recognition among village folk, and menial castes never. Presumably, the punch seldom um, this the punch seldom or never came from these uh, from these castes. Uh, presumably. Um, Yes, it's also possible that the punch contained obtained much more than their the proportionate shares of the labor of the families attached to the village, and that the co uh, community framework was thus also an instrument of exploitation of the artisan and menial population by village oligarchs. Um, the panchayat did probably have an element of confrontation and public deliberation, which made its members witness to transactions. But there were otherwise little in the village community to justify any vision of a communal life shared together, a sense of equality and democratic methods. Composed in the early centuries of the Christian era, the um, Milindapano tells us that when the village headman summoned the villagers to the crier of for consultation, only the notables responded, not the ordinary peasants and laborers and women. They do not count. Some 1500 years later, conditions were not in this respect very different. If anything, commodity productions have intensified internal differentiation. The oligarchs were now probably more powerful in respect to the weaker brethren. Whether they had styled punch or big men or dominant ones or mukadams, it was they who spoke in the same village and controlled the community. The principal grain lay in manipulation of the village finances so as to impose a proportional proportionately higher burden on the small peasantry and let themselves off light. Um, so that is very interesting. Um, these expressions of official ir irrigation, irritation at such iniquities should not ob obscure the fact that one community mechanism was used by the revenue authorities for collective collection of rev of revenue they used by the rev they inescapably provided the umbrella for the sub exploitation of lower peasantry and non peasant rural population by the village oligarchs the community by sustaining uh, sustaining village self-sufficiency enlarged the surplus and many and made its realization easier the oligarchs as controllers of the community mechanism because uh, petty sharers uh, in the surplus 
but it was the Mughal ruling class to which the major share of the surplus went in the form of tax, and that was the ultimate beneficiary. All these three elements form the normal time, um, times a cohesive, exploitive whole. So that, my friends, was the, the landowners of Mughal India. Am I right in saying it, it's the landowners? I lost the page. The village community, I apologize, the village community. Well, go to the village officials now, okay? Uh, in official documents, it is ordinary, ordinarily not the village community, but the headmen, using, usually called the Mukadam in northern India, or Patel in the, Dakka, in the Deccan, who appears as the principal person to, uh, in authority in the village, um, side by side with uh, the village accountant. A village could have more than one headman, and many as seven are named as doc in the documents. They came from ranks of a village oligarchs. In Jahangir's reign, Navsari southern Gujarat, there were many Brahmins who carried on cultivation like peasants. Uh, those who, from among them who were big men came to the Makadam in those villages. The office was hereditary and could also be bought and sold. Uh, testifying the growth of money relationships, the headman was normally a peasant himself. But sometimes, since the office would be could be purchased, an outsider, even in the townsman, could hold an office. He was never properly speaking to the government servant. But the revenue authorities could at times dispose a headman for failing his obligations, and they exercised the power of nominating village headmans um, that were newly settled or were due to be settled for all villages where the office was vacant owing to the absence of natural heirs. The authorities held that the Mukadams to be prim primarily responsible for the payment of revenue assessed in the village. It, was therefore it therefore became their duty to collect revenue share of each individual peasant. For this service, they were remunerated either through being assigned 2.5% of the assessed land of the village to the he to held to be held by the revenue free or the deduction of the same source um, percentage from total revenue collected by them. All alternatively, alternatively, they could impose it assess over and above the land revenue called uh, dahim, danim, five percent. But the suspicion was always entertained by that the mukadams, if left to them, they would um, make large. Um, Unauthorized collections from the weaker peasants under the pretense of realizing money to meet the revenue demand or to pay for revenue officials. When the authorities advance uh, loans, takvi, loans to encourage cultivation, the two were distributed among the peasants to the headmen, who doubtless took their share from passing money to the peasants. In addition to the financial advantages of accruing them or made possibly these functions, the Mokadam, exactly certain uh, customary prerequisites such as their um, kar karvurak or board from the village land and a rate um, known as Mokadami from the village individually. 
The Mukaddam jurisdiction over a village was not quite purely financial. He was also held responsible for any crime committed within or near his village in case of robbery, murder of travellers especially. He was obliged to produce the culprits and the goods stolen. But in this position, the, temp the temptation must often have been irresistible for him to father yet upon some uh, poor man um, that he may be clear here was another re weapon which the Mukaddam could use to intimidate his fellow villagers. Finally, the Mukaddam possessed a right of allotting the uncultivated land of the village in such as he will, in such as wished to it, to till it. This right was implicitly recognized by the authorities, where they entrusted the, the task of settling new villagers to certain persons um, of Mukaddam. Um, as Mukaddam, these headmen could not probably in, could not probably interfere with the land already occupied. Though in one case at least we find him arbitrating in a boundary dispute between two landlords. In many villages, not utterly ruined by the burden of land revenue, the position of the Mukaddam was a preferable one. There is evidence that the uh, the moneyed persons were sometimes tempted to buy this office as a good investment for their money. That's called bribes, my friend. The considerable power that the headmen came to wield over the village also sometimes led to their claiming of or acquiring certain rights identical to those of the Zamindars. Well, that was not going to work, I guess. So, Aranzib's reign, we find a Mukadami upon coupled with Satarahi or Bishwasaha, which were hallmarks of the Zamindar. It, um, it's not surprising, therefore, that a late 18th century glossary that could define the Mukadams as the proprietor Malik of one village, different perhaps from the Zamindar, only in the latter could also have more than village more than one village in his possession. Um, so basically, that is uh, the, the chapter as a whole. We've been talking for a good 53 minutes. Um, we gave you a little idea about the village community in India, the peasants, the landowners, the relationship between the peasants and the land, uh, the peasants, uh, laborers, and also the big institutions, uh, the panchayat, and all these that came together, the village community, how they worked. Um, so it's important to know all of this uh, before you go into the British Raj, because we've heard so much about the British Raj and all the nonsense told to us. But we and we we learned a lot of the Mughals uh, in our books and and thanks to the Indian National Congress and their World Bank politics. But what we were told was all nonsense uh, compared to what really happened. So I hope you do go and research everything, and we'll take it from there. Um, spread the news, have the conversation with at least five people, ask them to have it with five people, and ask them to continue the chain, because it's important to understand these, um, these intricacies of life on the Indian subcontinent, not just for politics, but for us too, because it's our currents that form the waves. So thank you so much for your time. I will leave you today, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you once again. I'm honored for, your, for you joining me on my podcast, and I hope uh, you have a great day tomorrow. Cheers, and uh, stay safe.